Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, how foods grown in water could help feed the world. And how wildfires in Australia affected phytoplankton growth thousands of kilometres away. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Next week is the United Nations Food Systems Summit. This is a global meeting of heads of state and other key stakeholders, which aims to bring about changes to the world's food production systems to help meet the UN's sustainable development goals. This project looks at so-called blue foods, things like plants, animals and algae from freshwater and marine environments. It explores the role that they could play in feeding the world's population in a healthy, sustainable and equitable way over the coming decades. To find out more about the role of blue foods in future food systems, Nature's Editor-in-Chief Magdalena Skipper spoke with Ismahan Elouafi, Chief Scientist at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, better known as the FAO. Here's Magdalena. I'm really delighted, Ismahan, that you've agreed to join me for this conversation, not least because 2021 is, of course, a really important year for the food systems. Could you give us a sense of the global problem with the current food system and how can blue food provide a solution or contribute to the solution? I think that when we talk about food security and nutrition security, we don't need to define it anymore. We, we know very well that we are losing ground. Now we know that we have 811 million people that are facing hunger. And the numbers are not reduced, they are growing by the day. And that's where if we can find systems that are producing more nutritious food, that are more environmental for the population on this planet Earth, this is a must. We have to invest in it. And that's where blue food are very important, to really provide us with more nutrition and more food for this growing population. 
to many, when we think about food production, we predominantly associate that with land-based production. We know that blue foods are connected with the rest of the food system. And yet policies that govern aquatic and terrestrial food production are largely siloed. Do you anticipate this to change? It has to change because we finally are looking at the whole food system. So I think it is needed. It's a bit more complex than terrestrial production because of the geographic spreading of ocean, of fish and algae and aquatic plants. That's a complexity that we have to find a way around to assess it, protect it, uh, manage it properly. Uh, but there is also, I think, more and more interest in understanding how could we produce more. So there is many areas that could be developed and it has to be tackled as the population is growing and as we are not able to produce more on the earth per se, but rather we're going to be producing less because of the climate change, because of the heating, then the pressure on food and nutrition coming from the blue food is going to rise in quite a lot. So you very appropriately wove into the discussion the issue of climate change. More broadly, of course, one cannot talk about food production without thinking about its environmental impact. One of the Blue Food Assessment papers, and of course many other publications also, evaluate this environmental impact for aquatic foods in particular and identifies opportunities for directing policies towards supporting particular aquatic food types that minimize environmental impact. These recommendations, though, are of course based on models. Can you comment on how useful modeling like this is? So modeling is very important and your model is as good as what data basis you have developed and what information you got in. So the more data we have, the better our outcomes are closer to the reality. Over the last 20 years, there is more and more interest on carbon footprint and good assessment of carbon footprint in blue food or plant-based or terrestrial animals. And that's where it's very important that we identify alternatives that are less pollutant and we need really to develop policies and regulation and incentives around those low carbon or zero carbon options. So this applies as well in the blue food. And if we target it and if we tackle it and provide alternatives, it's very important for us to go ahead with it and scale it up to have the impact that we need to do before 2030 agenda, before the 2050, where we have a lot of very bad scenarios by 2050 by the IPCC report. Let's talk about demand for particular types of food. So there is, in fact, data from the FAO, as well as the World Bank, suggesting, in fact, strongly indicating that there is a steady growth in demand for aquatic foods. Should we, in fact, work towards enhancing that demand? And if so, what do you envisage are the best strategies for directing these diet requirements globally? So for me, the demand will grow, either we are pushing for it or not. And the reason behind it is that the population is growing. So the demand for food in general is growing. We have also 
economic development in certain countries that will boost more consumption in those countries. And blue food is, how would I call it? It's growing in interest. The more we know about the nutritious values of the blue food, the more we're going to have a demand for it. So it's not a matter of if it's the right thing to do or not, but this is happening. And the ecosystem where we have the blue foods are very fragile ecosystems because of climate change and because of the pollutant. So it's very important for us to manage it properly to make sure we are building a more resilient system, more sustainable, more inclusive, and more equitable. Speaking of being inclusive, both the blue food and terrestrial food production, much of it, of course, is in the hands of small-scale producers and generally, historically, underappreciated constituencies, such as, for example, women, play a really important function in generating food for many communities. Do you think that we are making the most of their contributions to engineering, to reimagining of the food system, both from their perspective, but also indeed from the perspective of is the food system transformation being done the right way? The short answer, Magdalena, is no. Most of the solutions that were created over the last 50 years never made it to the farmers. Because most of those farmers are smallholders and because most of the solution were not created for them. It was much more created for larger commercial farming systems in general. So we have really to look at what smallholders need and provide them with those solutions. And that's part of the deep transformation that we need in our food systems. The other area is the gender per se. It's really how could we work more with women? How could we provide them with the right solution that works better for their ecosystem, for their communities, for their production system? The third component that I see really very, very interesting, and that I have to say that the UN Food System Summit is trying to address, it's really the youth and how could we provide a voice to the youth and bring them on board. How could we excite them again about the agri-food systems? Because in most of the least and middle-income countries, agriculture, it's not appealing to most of the youth because it's not like agriculture at large, including fisheries in the OECD countries. It's very traditional. It's not encompassing enough innovation because of the cost. So if we want to really bring youth back to agriculture. We need to modernize it and modernize it in a way that works for smallholder in least and middle income countries. So there is a lot of momentum towards food system transformation. Already this year, we've seen a lot of preparation, for example, towards the food system summit. What's the prospect for the future? How quickly can we transform the food systems? When can we reach food security on a global scale? That's a difficult question, sincerely, Magdalena, because, see, we had a plan. Since 2015, we have the 2030 development agenda, and we had really very clear targets there that hopefully we will end hunger, poverty, and many other things by 2030. What we know right now is that we are not on track, but 
The bright side of it is that in my mind, there is so many low-hanging fruit that will require coalition of willing government and stakeholder to make it happen. Like if we can only think about waste and loss, we have about more than 34% of our food from the blue food to others that are waste or loss. There is a huge pollution that really is affecting the blue food production and the quality of the food per se. That could be also quite easy to manage through the proper policies, through the proper guidelines, the proper reforms, and the proper incentives as well. There is many things that could be done if we are really taking a global action. In a nutshell, it's very hard to give a year. We all were aiming for 2030. But in the same time, there is many things that we could do to speed up the process. I will hope really that the Food Systems Summit will allow us to identify and to bring in all the stakeholders to have a, a true transformation that will allow us to at least stay within the target of 2030. That was Ismahan Elouafi, Chief Scientist for the FAO. To find out more about the Blue Food Assessment and to read the research papers, the associated comment articles and an editorial, look out for a link in this week's show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing more about the world's oceans and how Australia's recent wildfires affected the growth of marine phytoplankton. Before that, though, Dan Fox is here with this week's research highlights. Are you squeamish about syringes? Nervous about needles? If so, you're not alone. Many people around the world are, which can be problematic if you need to receive one of the many medications that are only effective when delivered by injection. To overcome this issue, researchers have come up with a new design that combines the function of an injection in the form of a pill that can be swallowed. The team's egg-shaped capsule is 15mm tall and can hold 4mg of a liquid drug. When swallowed, it settles in the stomach and thanks to a weighted bottom, automatically writes itself. Digestive fluids then dissolve a pellet at the top of the capsule, triggering a needle to inject a medicine into the stomach wall. The needle then retracts so that the device can pass safely through the intestines. The team have shown their pill can administer pharmaceuticals such as insulin to animals and hope to test the auto-injector capsule in humans soon. Take your time to digest that research in Nature Biotechnology. Octopuses can manipulate the colour of individual pixel-like cells in their skin, allowing the animals to match their surroundings at will. Now, researchers have developed a similarly controllable colour-changing material in the lab, using liquid crystals. The team created a soft film of long, liquid crystal molecules that reflect different colours depending on how tightly they are twisted. They then set this film atop a flat platform containing an array of microscopic air chambers. These chambers serve as the pixels, inflating and deflating, deforming the film and changing its colour. The system can reproduce colourful patterns on command, allowing the film to blend into a complex background. The film also reflects infrared light, which could allow for the creation of thermal images invisible to the naked eye. 
Read the full paper, if you can find it, in Nature Materials. The Australian summer of 2019 to 2020 was devastating for wildfires. It was one of the most severe seasons in the country's history. Millions of hectares of land were burned, nearly 3 billion animals may have died, and it's estimated that over 700 million tonnes of carbon dioxide were emitted into the atmosphere. But this week in Nature, researchers have published evidence of another impact of these fires, and it's one you might not expect. We heard earlier about how fragile marine ecosystems are, and this work describes how aerosols released during the fires travelled thousands of kilometres and landed in the oceans where they may have triggered blooms of microscopic phytoplankton. To find out more, Anand Jagatia spoke to the joint first authors, Wei Yi Tang from Princeton University in the US and Joanne Lort from the Barcelona Supercomputing Centre in Spain. He started by asking Wei Yi how aerosols from fire could affect marine life. Previous studies have measured the nutrients contained in aerosols, so they found aerosols could be enriched in uh, macronutrients and trace metals, including iron. So those elements are essential to life, including uh, for phytoplankton in the ocean. So that leads us to think about whether those aerosols emitted from the Australian wildfires could affect the marine ecosystem. Okay, and Joanne, I'm going to bring you in here. When you were looking at these aerosols, what kinds of data were you actually taking into account? How were you able to see where they travelled from where they originated to where they ended up? So we get different sources of data. So there's some satellites that have some sensors to estimate the quantity of aerosols in the atmosphere to see where the smoke was going. So the fires started in the southeastern coast of Australia and the prevailing winds in the region transported all this smoke towards the east crossing the Pacific Ocean, the smoke reached South America, and even it went all through the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. So it's mesmerizing because you can see this, this plume of smoke traveling round, uh, around the globe, and it has been shown that it went into, into the stratosphere. It modified the circulation of the atmosphere, and it actually kind of reduced the amount of heat that the Earth was absorbing this year. And you were also interested in figuring out what was in the aerosols, uh, particularly looking for the presence of iron. Why were you so interested in iron? We knew that these waters in the Southern Ocean were limited in iron, and there has been lots of research proposing that if we add iron into the Southern Ocean, we will fertilize these waters. So the question were, did these aerosols contain any iron at all? In this small island of Tasmania, south of Australia, they have um, a sampling station for aerosols. And we actually found that when the smoke was coming from the fires, there was lots of iron concentration in our sampling station. And then what were you looking for in terms of the impact that, that these aerosols might have had when they landed in the oceans? So we knew that there was smoke in the atmosphere, but this, this doesn't give you any information of if this air smoke and aerosols is going into the ocean because... We also knew that it was reaching the stratosphere, so it, it could just stay there forever. So what we did for that is we did two things. First one was to look at, at another satellite data that gives us information about the phytoplankton concentration at the surface of the ocean. And we found that, that there was an anomalous response of phytoplankton. And the other thing we got is that and there's some 
robots in, in the ocean right now that has been deployed for more than 10 years now. And they sample the ocean. And every 10 days, they come into the surface and they send us the data through satellite. We're lucky enough that a couple of robots were in the region where we observe uh, anomalous phytoplankton concentration. So we could infer that actually there was a response related to, to, to the passage of the smoke. So you were able to show that the aerosols did get into the water and that they had an effect on the phytoplankton, creating this anomalous concentration, as, as you refer to it. Uh, Wei, what did you actually see? What do you mean by that? In our study region in the open ocean, in the South Pacific and Southern Ocean, we observed strong response of phytoplankton. Some of those uh, regions doubled the phytoplankton biomass or concentration, or even more. How confident can you be that it was the fires that triggered the bloom? So the other sources of nutrients potentially affected the phytoplankton bloom in the Southern Ocean, like transport of the nutrients from other regions and the mixing of the deep water that are enriched in nutrients to the surface. So we have estimated the potential impact of those other nutrient sources, and we found those impacts might be relatively small compared to the impact from the aerosol. And Joanne, were you surprised by what you found? I mean, it is kind of mind-blowing that wildfires can potentially impact marine ecosystems that are so far away. Well, for me, there's, there's a beautiful idea of that um, the natural cycles tend to recycle anything. The idea that two different ecosystems that are like 10,000 kilometers away are connected and what, what's going on in one ecosystem is impacting on the other one for me, it's a pretty amazing idea. This is why it's so important to study iron and any kind of aerosols that brings iron into the southern ocean waters because we know that you can even modify the carbon cycle at the global scale. It sounds like there's actually quite a complex set of interactions going on here that you've potentially got climate change, which is leading to more wildfires, which could potentially... Uh, affect marine ecosystems, and then that in turn is going to impact the climate and have a, f- a further impact on wildfires. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right, because the phytoplankton is, is like any plant that we have at home. It absorbs um, CO2 and it produces oxygen during the photosynthesis. The difficult thing to know here is that once the phytoplankton has absorbed this carbon and has metabolized it, does this carbon, it stays in the surface and goes again into the atmosphere, or it goes into the deep ocean? If it goes into the deep ocean, then it means that you're sequestering this carbon for hundreds of years, or for thousands even. But if it stays in the surface, then then it doesn't change anything. So, And that, that's a big knowledge gap right now. That was Joanne Lort speaking to Anand Jagatia. You also heard from Wei Yi Tang. You can find a link to their paper in the show notes. And that's all we've got time for on this week's show. Join us again next time for more stories from the world of science. And don't forget that in the meantime, you can drop us a line, either on Twitter, at Nature Podcast, or email, podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bandel. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.